America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to The Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Welcome to The Catherine Zox Show. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. We have three guests joining us this morning. The first one is Joseph Cordell, author of a new book called The Ten Stupidest Mistakes Men Make When Facing Divorce and How to, and how to Avoid Them. Uh, he is the founder of Cordell & Cordell, which is a leading law firm for men, which is very unique, facing divorce, and creator of dadsdivorce.com. So we're going to be talking to him first. Uh, next is Dr. Pavel Samanov. He is a Ph.D., a counseling psychologist, and his new book, is called The Lotus Effect. He's, called, he's an expert on the ways that mindfulness and meditation can improve our day-to-day lives. He says, out with the bad and in with the good, which I think is something that we all want. And last, here's a topic that most people or many of us don't want to talk about, but it has become an epidemic in the United States, bed dugs. They are a growing epidemic, so brace yourself. Jeff Eisenberg and his New York City-based company, Pestaway, have successfully treated more than 100,000 spaces for bed bugs. So he's going to tell us what to do if we have them, what to look for, and perhaps how to prevent them. But first, we have Mr. Joseph Cordell, our attorney, the 10 stupidest mistakes men make when facing divorce and how to avoid them. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning. Well, thank you for having me on. Well, I think your firm, obviously, well, to me it's unique. I mean, this is a firm for men and about men, and it has to do with the legal issues surrounding divorce. Usually, uh, in my experience, uh, it's all about the women when it comes to divorce. Um, and I've been divorced myself, so I know what I'm talking about. But um, tell us about, you know, do, are men, is it unique for men to make these stupid mistakes when they face divorce, or is this something that women do as well? Well, these uh, these particular mistakes are mistakes that uh, are not exclusively mistakes men make, but they're overwhelmingly mistakes men make. And your your previous comment, you're absolutely right. There is this perception that moms and wives dominate the family courts, and it's one of those those areas that, quite frankly, is a is, court, is a civil rights issue that has not been addressed. And and ultimately, I think. Uh, perhaps over time that th- this issue will be rectified. But in the, in the immediate circumstances, these guys have their, their lives dramatically changed. Their children are taken from them to a great extent. Um, often the financial hardship imposed on guys, and this is contrary to the public perception, uh, is, is su- such that they can't possibly meet the demands, and it more or less drives them away from continuing participation in their children's lives. 
Yeah, I guess that is a misperception, uh, Joseph, because we always think, well, they, men have the money, but they just don't want to pay up. That's kind of, the, I think, the public per, uh, perception of when women go through divorce. But um, I just want to re- reveal one statistic, because each year, which 500,000 American men will face divorce, so we're talking about a lot of men and a lot of families. Uh, so, you know, the importance, obviously, of your book. But um, so what are some of the mistakes that men make? What do they do? I mean, well, one, one mistake that, that you certainly see represented heavily on, on the men's side of the table is that they leave the marital home. Now, that's not always a mistake, but it's often a mistake. And, and it's always done, incidentally, without discussion or, or uh, decision for input by their attorney. And I think that, that it, it's interesting that these guys, who for the most part have paid for this house in many cases, certainly they paid for half, and uh, their wife becomes frustrated, um, and she points to the door and says, leave. And almost as if they're a, a guest at a bed and breakfast, uh, they, they run upstairs, they pack a bag, and out they go. And then sometime thereafter, they go to their attorney's office and say, gee, do you think this was a good idea? And often it wasn't. But why wasn't it a good idea? You're talking about in a legal sense. Are you, is that considered desertion if you leave? Is that what you're saying? Like they should stay? No, it's not. It's not because of desertion. But um, many of these men uh, want to continue to play a large role in their kids' lives. They want, uh, in some cases, primary custody, and in many cases, uh, a 50-50 custody arrangement, sometimes called joint custody, and, and for them to, by their behavior pull themselves out of the children's lives, and, and ultimately that, that kind of gives the wife the, the, the control at the top of the hill, so to speak, and, and she can limit to a great extent the guy's interactions because she has exclusive possession of the marital home in which the children are living. And, and as a result, the, these guys become marginalized, and it's difficult for them to persuade a court six months, a year down the road uh, that they did this for the kids or for their wife. Well, let me throw something in there, though, Joseph. Um, what about, I mean, you have a couple who wants to get divorced, so obviously they have reached some kind of a point where they just, uh, sometimes it can even be a, a volatile situation, a situation where there can be physical or emotional abuse. And, you know, I'm looking at it from the social worker's perspective or the psychological perspective. Uh, it, it, it's not good for them to remain together in the same house because there could be some real serious consequences to that. So then what do you do in that kind of a situation? You've got two people sitting there on a powder keg in the same house, both wanting to to be involved in the children's life, but maybe physically it's not a good idea for both of them to be in the same place. Yeah, you're right, Catherine. Actually, you've, you've kind of hit the nail on the head on, on the most sensitive issue associated with this strategy and, um, and, and and let me kind of enlarge that that situation from a practical standpoint too. Is wives, as a practical matter, possess this nuclear weapon in the family court process, and it's called an allegation of of domestic violence, an order of protection, restraining order. It has different names around the country, but it exists in all fifty states. And and what this empowers her with is the ability to make an allegation, and in many cases a very vague allegation, that can result in this guy uh, being arrested. He can be taken out of the house. He can have an order in place that will change his professional life. Uh, it's, a, it's a very draconian measure, 
And, and these guys are in a very vulnerable position to the extent that they continue to stay in the house. And even when we're advising clients on this and when they've come to us in advance, we have to talk this through because it is a careful, it, it has to be a decision that's made uh, premeditatively. And, of course, it always means that these guys have to scrupulously walk away from any potential conflict. They cannot even be in, involved in a discussion where voices are raised. So if, if we question the guy's self-discipline to do that, uh, if, if he might be in a situation where he's going to be in a yelling match, then, then he's going to lose because if the police are called, she's not going to jail. So it's a tough call. It is a tough call. And I guess uh, uh, what you're saying is, would you, I guess as a advice, maybe, I mean, I know this is just general, each case is different, but before anyone does anything, and particularly in this case we're talking about the man, he needs to consult an attorney before moving out or doing anything. Uh, I'm calling it drastic, but really needs to not make decisions just you know, at the spur of the moment. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, right, exactly. He, he shouldn't uh, respond simply to his wife's demand that he leave. Okay, because he wants to, okay. And the second, in, in your book, you talk about uh, neglecting the children, this whole issue. I mean, divorce is about, when you go through, it's about money and custody, isn't it? I mean, those are the two issues. And, Pretty much, yeah. I mean, I guess there are others, but those are the main issues, the, the money and the custody and the property. Um, so what you say is if you want custody, if, if you want custody of your children, then you've got to be there, and you've got to be there for them. Because the, if, it, well, if it gets to court, the judge is going to look at you, and you say you want custody of your children, but then you're never there or you're not involved in their lives. Yeah, and, and you know, all too often what, what even still happens today, though more frequently both parties are employed, is that there's still this division of labor, this understanding between the, the husband and wife that, the husband's going to go out and work especially hard, in many cases exclusively, to be the hunter and gatherer. He's going to go out and, and, and work professionally. He'll, if they both have jobs even, often the husband will work 60-plus hours a week and maybe the wife will work 40. But there, there's still this, this uh, disproportionate relationship sometimes between the parent, parenting of the wife and the husband. Well, when it comes time for divorce, you know, suddenly the, the, the husband will announce well, gee, I love these children as much as she does, and, and in the future, you know, I will have the opportunity to have more time, et cetera. So he's battling this status quo, this history uh, that might be perceived as incriminating to him. So, uh, so he has to write this imbalance in some way, and, and at least he cannot perpetuate that imbalance. He's got to insert himself, and sometimes he has to do it insistently, um, in, into the children's lives in order to be involved, Dad. There's a difference between physical custody. Could you explain this, the difference between physical custody, and I, I, I don't know the term. Uh, you can have custody of your children. It may not be physical custody, but it has cust it's custody in terms you have equal say in terms of how you uh, govern your children's lives, you, you know, the, the decision-making for underage children, uh, for well, their children, but... Mm -hmm. um, what is the difference? And first of all, what's the terminology for the there's phys the physical custody and the what? Well, uh, there, there's legal custody, legal custody and there's yeah. physical custody, and and sometimes they they go by slightly different names in different states. But but the bottom line is kind of what you suggest. Um, 
courts realized years ago that that the persons that they choose to have physical custody may not be the same way they would allocate decision-making authority. But what courts like to do is give authority to both parties, but in the very imperfect world of divorce, they find that often in a democracy of two, uh, you end up with a logjam much of the time. So they, they give the final decision often to mom since she has the kids, uh, but she's supposed to do that after consulting and informing dad. But we all know as a practical matter that that uh, often that's not going to happen. I think as a practical matter, one of the issues that, you know, the, and lawyers will tell you this and, and therapists will tell you this, you know, you, you have to do things for the, for the best that are best for the children and to be able to get along and to make decisions and do the right thing. And it's almost like an oxymoron because you have two people who couldn't do that under the best of circumstances when they were living together and supposedly supporting one another. Now you've got them, you know, go, you know each one has an attorney. They're going against each other, and they're supposed to behave in this manner. How do you reconcile that, men or women? Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, you're absolutely right. There is no door number three here in which uh, the parties live harmonious perfect lives for the for the benefit of the children going forward. So you have these these doors one and two, and to some extent the court has to hold its nose in choosing one or the other. Um, so it, it's the battle of what is the the uh, uh, the most imperfect or the, the least imperfect. And and I think that that from a guy's perspective, the the pendulum in an effort to protect kids, perhaps on some level. Um, the pendulum has swung much too far in favor of moms in the family court, and um, and it, this uh, happens in any arena in society over time as the pendulum has to come back and get closer to the center. Um, and I think that that's what needs to happen here is is while it's not a perfect solution to have dads more involved, and you can't have more. It's possible to have more conflict and. And yeah, if you if you allow dads to to pay a, a number that is more affordable to them, then does it mean that there's less money that mom and potentially the children will have? It, it that's possibly true, um, but but it still would would produce something that would be closer to what um, all parties might perceive as just in their best moments. Joseph, do you think that the laws, and I know each state, uh, when it comes to divorce, as I understand it, that each state has different statutes and they treat divorce differently in terms of legal matters, but do you think that perhaps the laws haven't changed or caught up with, or I'm not sure how you would describe it, with our changing society? Because some of them were based on the fact that women did stay home most of the time and they were taking, the reality was they were home, they were the ones who were the primary caretakers of the children, but over the past, let's say, 20 years, that has changed because you have work, but, you know, both parents work, uh, neither one of them are, are probably, you know, they're probably, most of them are, many of them are home on an equal basis, so all of the, the structure of the family has changed, so are we, are you addressing that when it comes to, um, you know, men and divorce? Well, you're, you're right. Is uh, it, we what is reflected in the statutes of many states now is a family arrangement that has become largely obsolete, and that the June and Ward Cleaver scenario is is very unusual today. And um, and furthermore, you know, women have have insisted that they want to be pers- treated the same 
but in family courts, uh, there's not quite that 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 uh, demand for justice. And and I think though that that the result of that though is that alimony, for example, and maintenance, while it's been it's been restricted in many states more and in lim- limited in a number of states still, it is it is given out on a wholesale basis uh, to women who. Um, who would have the capacity to go out and get employment but are discouraged from it by virtue of this check that they get from their husband as a sort of adult child support. And, and, if, you, and, and if you turn the tables, though, and have a guy walking into court, into those same courts, and they've been unemployed for five to ten years despite the fact that they've been doing parenting, et cetera, um, the, the dad is characterized as a deadbeat who needs to go out and get a job whereas mom was engaged in a noble profession. And, and you're saying that that hasn't changed? or it's, it, I mean, I see a lot of these, a lot, I mean, not as many men as women who are stay-at-home dads. And, I mean, and that's been the understanding of the couple, and that the dad is not looked upon, at least when they're married, as a deadbeat staying home and taking care of the, uh, the kids. So... Um, does that change at all when they go to family court or when they go to court? Or I mean, is the perception different? It, it's a higher bar of proof. Um, certainly it's not impossible for those guys to establish that that was the deal and that what they were doing was something that was hugely beneficial to the children. Uh, but still, the dads carry this burden, a burden that in, in many cases they can't meet to prove that they were legitimately a homemaker. And the point is, there is no burden for the wife walking in and being unemployed for five to ten years. As a matter of fact, there's a presumption that, that she has been a homemaker. So it, it, it's, uh, it's the reverse in terms of the obligation to go forth with evidence in the two situations. But you do find in situations and uh, with couples um, where with mother and father are working, let's say, equally, but mother does tend to, and I, you know, I don't have the statistics, but... They end up doing also more child, or is this just a myth? If they end up doing more of the child care and the grocery shopping and taking the kids to the doctors and still maintain a full-time job. Yeah, and, and I think that you may be right in terms of statistics. Um, but but in, an interesting thing to think about is um, <laughs> we reject those statistics when it comes to stereotyping in almost every other sphere of our culture. We've decided that statistics about race, uh, statistics about gender and other contexts, we're to reject and, and say, no, we're to make a decision on a truly individual basis. And I, think, and I know that my clients, for the most part, would be happy with a judge and a system that would put them on the same footing for purposes of making the determination that, that you suggest. And and the problem is, though, that there is a, a prejudice built into the system that closes the door on even those guys who have been more involved in many cases. What about the judges? Because they've changed as well. We used to have, you know, the old well, male judge who was judging you, and now we have many women attorneys and also women who are judges. Does that change things when you get to court and when men are facing a woman judge, female judge? Uh, certainly, I think that I think that having judges that are familiar with the new ethos uh, with our new culture is helpful. Um, but I can't say that I'm seeing this dramatic change 
in the tendencies of courts. And I don't want to place this on the shoulder of, of all judges. Obviously, I think many judges are are uh, do work very hard to do the right and fair thing. And, and but I also want to call attention to beyond the judges. Uh, there's this family court system in which in, there are a number of participants. I mean, there there are psychologists, there are our counselors, uh, family workers, uh, even experts in other fields. The lawyers themselves have this preconceived notion about mom and dad in these roles when their clients walk in. So I think that there's either through uh, either through direct action or inaction. I think that uh, lots of people's hands in the family system are simply not prepared to give dads the sort of fair shake that I think they deserve. So how did you get, we only have about five minutes left, and I could go on and on with this topic, and there are many more topics that you cover in your book, but people are going to have to go out and get the book if they want to find out what they are. But how did you get involved with this practice kind of for men only when it comes to divorce? Well, uh, 20 years or so ago, um, I had a practice that was general, it was domestic relations generally. And um, over time, I found that I was representing uh, guys more and more. I found that I enjoyed that side of the table because it was more of a challenge. And, uh, and I thought that it was an opportunity to do something in a way that I didn't see a lot of, of professionals or the court system addressing. So I decided to burn the ships on the shore. I proclaimed <laughs> to the world that I was going to be uh, a firm that was devoted to serving men. And... Uh, and it kind of grew from there. And it really grew from there. As I understand it, you have firms all over in many states in the United States, and you can go online and actually see where they are if you Google your uh, law firm. But tell us about dadsdivorce.com. You created that website. What can we get from that? Well, dadsdivorce.com we created about in, in 98, 99, and since then we have, I'm sure, a 1,000-plus articles that our attorneys have written to help dads through the process. I mean, it's a treasure trove of wonderful, practical, legal information uh, that, that it's free. And I strongly encourage guys to check it out. Yeah. It's so important, and I think particularly a website for men, because I find as a therapist that men have difficulty sharing or talking about their feelings. And I know this is, sounds prejudicial, but I think there's some truth to that. And so when they go through these crises, they may have one men, man friend that they will share things with, but usually not people at work or in their profession, whereas women tend to reach out. You know, they'll reach out and talk to almost anyone uh, about what's going on, especially during a divorce. So they can do this, go online. They don't have to do a lot of talking, but they get a lot of information. So I think it would be particularly helpful for men. Yeah, I think that, that what, what you described, though, is largely correct, that, that guys... Do, uh, they don't have the support network often uh, that their wives have when they go into the divorce process because their wives were their best friends. And they, they weren't intimate with anyone else in terms of what was going on in their lives. Yeah, so it makes that, that site. It's this, I went to the site. Um, I do, I'm going to mention it again. It's dadsdivorce.com. Um, and now, what for, where are you? What firm are you in? I know we have one. I'm in New York, and I know I think there is a firm, one of your firms is here in Albany, New York, on State Street. Yes, we have an Albany office. Um, yeah, I live in St. Louis, and, uh, and that's where our, our headquarters is. Right. But I make it around the country quite a bit. Yeah, <laughs> you're all over. Um, 
one last thing I just wanted to mention, because you say that uh, one of the mistakes, and maybe this is the last one we'll talk about, but uh, revealing too much on the Internet. Now, that, that, that's something, obviously, that's new within the past probably 10 or 15 years, that men shouldn't reveal too much on the, on the Internet about themselves because that could come back to slap them in the face when they go to court or when they get divorced. Um, explain that, because if you've already been on the Internet, what do you do? The stuff is out there. You have a Facebook account. You've been using it, so you can't retrieve that information. Yeah, you're, you're right. Is that it, it can be a problem what's happened already. Um, there's been a revolution in the, the family court process, in the divorce process, from the perspective of, of, of lawyers particularly. I mean, uh, what, it, what is available now by doing online searches is information that even the best private detective couldn't have hoped for 20 years ago. I mean, people have pictures out there in which they... They talk about issues directly related to custody, directly related to squandering or wasting assets, uh, to income sources that they might not otherwise disclose. There's just all sorts of information out there that can have an impact on the outcome of a divorce. Now, we'll say this, Catherine, is that I think that the net effect of this development has probably been a little more favorable for men than it's been hurtful. Uh, it seems that wives may spend a little more time online, that they may be a little more expressive. Um, they, they tend more to, to put up photos and, and other such things. So quite frankly, in, in cases that we've had around the country, we've had them tilt as a result of some developments that were information that was obtained online, uh, which the wife was perhaps doing things the court had told her not to in one case, she, she op- was openly defiant about the judge and said some things about the judge that was, certainly didn't hurt, didn't help her in his eyes. Um, so, so the Internet can be very powerful in influencing the course of a divorce, and both parties need to know it. And we, we counsel our guys at the outset, and, but we also ask them what is out there. To the extent that we can do any cleanup or expl- explanation, et cetera, then we will. Uh, but certainly we don't want the hole to get any deeper as we progress through the case. Uh, that is a whole new level, I get, and as I'm listening to you of the law, I guess one thing I, we would recommend, I mean, if you're having an affair, don't put that out there, too, because you, I mean, you see that on the Internet, particularly with women, uh, and so um, that's not a good thing to do, obviously, but um, I mean, that's the most obvious, but... So revealing too much on the Internet, a whole new topic. We have to say goodbye. Joseph Cordell, uh, attorney, author of The Ten Stupidest Mistakes Men Make When Facing Divorce and How to Avoid Them. You can go online. You can buy the book, Amazon.com, bookstores everywhere, and go to uh, his website or go to the law firm's website, dadsdivorce.com. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Thank you for having me. It was great talking to you. We're going to be back in a few minutes. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, uh, the author of The Lotus Effect. Dr. Pavel Zamoff is going to be talking to us about uh, mindful meditation and how to get rid of all that yucky stuff in your life, some of it very serious, some of it not so serious, and have more good days than bad days. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. 
Do you need directions to solve financial future? If so, the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern for the Money Answer Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. Welcome back. You're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with the microphone. Joining me in this half hour is Dr. Pavel Samoff, Ph.D., an expert on the many ways that mindfulness and meditation can improve our day-to-day lives. He says, out with the bad and in with the good. I agree with him. Uh, He's a licensed psychologist, practices in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and the author of several other books. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Doctor. Mindful morning to you and your listeners. Thank you. Well, thank you. Well, I'm one of those high-energy people who's all over the place, so I guess if you can calm me down, it's a good thing. Um, But the name of your book is The Lotus Effect. What does that mean in terms of mindful meditation and being able to um, calm ourselves down and, you know, when we feel not balanced and when we feel, uh, well, many things, you know, angry, worried, stressed, all of those things. Um, you talk about the lotus effect. What is that? Yes. Um, lotus, the flower lotus, has been a longstanding symbol of spiritual purity and psychological calmness and equanimity in the East, and the reason isn't necessarily related to its beauty. Uh, it's actually a very smart flower. It has developed, developed a Rain-X-like substance that keeps it clean, so the lotus effect, psychologically speaking, is the metaphor borrowed from the life of the lotus flower uh, pertaining to the idea of a kind of psychological, informational self-cleaning that helps you know yourself, and in so doing, to minimize suffering. Uh, one of the points of the book is that self-knowledge is a kind of psychologically protective factor. If I know what I am, then I don't stress out as much about things that change. Right. Give that us an example. Say- what do you mean by that? If I know who I am, I won't get stressed out. Okay. Um, well, uh, the, the most basic example is, for example, uh, what we do, you know, the most common Self-identification is a professional identification. You identified me on this program as an expert in mindfulness and as a licensed psychologist. Uh, And, of course, I'm not. I'm not what I do, so I'm not a psychologist. Psychologist is a professional title. It's something that I do, but I'm not what I do. So, for example, if I were to lose my license, I wouldn't necessarily lose my essential core self. And passive awareness of that is a kind of psychologically protective factor. By the same token, if somebody were to challenge my expertise about mindfulness, it might be a chip in my armor, but not necessarily a chip in my uh, fundamental, essential sense of what I am. 
So, so how do we get to that? I under, now I understand what you're saying, and I, sure. I think listeners will also. In other words, and, and it's probably very relevant today because a lot of people are losing their jobs, whatever, yes. whether they may be professionals, they may be psychologists or doctors or lawyers or business people, and many people see themselves as their profession or as their, if they're a Ph.D. or an M.D., um, they need to see them, but that's really not who they are. That's not their inner core. So how do we get to that point so that well, we the, just don't identify with our the description of our, our job or our profession? Yes, yes. Well, uh, the short answer to that question is through mindfulness. Uh, the, the longer question, the longer answer involves the explanation of what mindfulness is. Uh, there are all kinds of explanations of what mindfulness is from the esoteric standpoint and spiritual standpoint. But if we look at mindfulness from a purely Western kind of cognitive perspective, then mindfulness is nothing other than than metacognitive distancing. Metacognitive distancing is when you recognize that you are not your thoughts, that you are not your feelings, that you are not your sensations. You are that that experiences those objects of consciousness, but not necessarily the very objects of consciousness that you experience. So in a sense, what mindfulness teaches is how to disidentify from your internal experience. So if I were to sit down and to watch my mind flow, before too long I'm going to realize that thoughts come and go. In fact, I'm going to realize that there has never been a thought that didn't go away because if there had been, I would have been still thinking that very original thought. So mindfulness is a profound experience of self. It teaches you about that immune, invulnerable, imperturbable uh, part that is always there, that unqualified uh, sense of presence that is essentially linguistically beyond description. So if, if you were to ask me what am, I, what am I, I would be a fool to try to answer it, but what I would be wise to do is to tell you what I'm not. I'm not what I do. I'm not what you think I do. I'm not my self-descriptions. I'm not your descriptions of me. I'm not my reputation. I'm not my wife's opinion of me. I'm not... Uh, my favorite self-descriptions, I'm not my feelings, I'm not my sensations. So by knowing what we're not, we begin to know what we are. So in a sense, what's happening here is a kind of profound shift from informational self-description to a more experiential, nonverbal experience of self. We confuse ourselves with our egos, but egos are just our informational avatars. These are the things that we use that represent us to the world, but we're not our masks, we're not our informational circumstances. And so mindfulness practical, allows you... I'm going to stop you because I want to look at this from a, a very practical point of view. You've described we have to understand what we are not. Yes. We are, we are not, you are not, I'm not a social worker. That's not my core. Exactly. I'm not what my boyfriend thinks of me or my exactly. kids think of me on any given day or my exactly. boss. Yes. So there's my inner core. How do... I'm still not clear, and I don't know if my listeners are either, because in a very practical way, okay, that's what we're not. But then how, on a day-to-day basis, uh, let's say we're, fairly, we're, we're, we're stressed out because we are working too hard we, you know, we, and we're not making enough money and there's a lot of financial problems. Okay. We need to relieve that stress. And you're relating that to being able to get to our inner core. How, how does that relate Well, essentially, what what you do with this process is that you go through a kind of um, 
you, you do a lot of prep work. Uh, you're posing a very, very serious question. You're essentially saying, tell me tangibly and concretely and practically how to alleviate human suffering. And exactly. And I don't have a five-minute explanation for that. But That's what I right. do is a program that I laid out, and the process of that program is a kind of informational strip-down. So you do it on the front end. You uh, front-load this self, self-care project. You redefine your, your very sense of self in such a way as to preempt the future panic attacks and bouts of distress about any symbolic threat to your existence. So, for example, let's say you buy this book and you sit down this weekend and you begin to read through it and you go through uh, one of the parts of the book where you look at one of the mirrors. For example, you look into the so-called social mirror. And, and what that means is that you begin to experiment with such ideas as, I'm not my friend's opinion of me. And you ponder that, and you give it some thought, and it plants a seed in your mind, and you realize you begin to experience sort of uh, a sense of calmness that when your friends change what they think about you, nothing changes about you fundamentally. Now, that in and of itself, that insight, isn't going to buy you a whole lot of mileage, but it's a lotus seed, if you wish, and it begins to take growth. And then, say, a couple of weeks from now, somebody deletes you from, your, from their Facebook, and you have this reflexive uh, overreaction. You begin to wonder what that means about you, and then you realize, well, actually, it doesn't really mean anything about you in your core. It just means something about what so-and-so thought, because you've already established to yourself previously that you are not other people's thoughts. Now, let's say that in the aftermath of that Facebook uh, deletion, you begin to rethink what you are, and you begin to wonder, well, am I such-and-such, am I so-and-so, and then you go back to what you've read, and you realize, well... You know, I'm not my own thoughts either. I'm the one who is having this thought. So here I am, self-loathing, having a thought about what I am, but I'm not that thought either. And then you just stop chasing that tail. So you begin to you begin to develop a series of these kinds of uh, precedents, internal precedents of dis- disidentification. And over time, you develop a habit of knowing what you are without getting caught up in what you're not. So maybe, say, in half a year or a year, you begin to notice that you are becoming sort of Teflon-like. Stuff doesn't stick to you. Uh, you know, somebody honks at you in traffic, and it's a non-event. You know, your boss gives you a dirty look, and it's a non-event. Of course, you play the game and you adapt, and sometimes we have to suck up to get along. But internally, you realize it's just a game. It's just an avatar on the screen. And with time, you become less and less uh, caught up in that experience, but does it also, as time goes on and becomes I, 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 more automatic, is what you're saying? And yes, you're not. Yes. It just it happens because yes. you've created this habit of not responding to what one person thinks of you. Because ten people will think different, ten different things about you, sure. and none of them are you. Is what you're saying? Yes. But does, how, doctor, does that get you from not being connected and not taking people seriously and having a serious? Let's take a, a marriage or a, a sure. partnership. You know, two people. Um, who are committed to one another, and are you sitting there with your partner who's telling you, well, this bothers me about you, or I'd like you to change this, or whatever the, the talk is, are you dismissing them and you're not reacting? You don't take what they have to say seriously? How does that fit in? Because you need to, to get along. You need to be connected with people. Well, you, you take it seriously. You just don't take it personally. And there is a fundamental distinction between, the, between those two. The fact of the matter is that nobody really knows us exactly the way we are. 
phenomenologically and experientially we're fundamentally beyond being known. We're inside. Nobody has the password. Nobody has the wealth of the internal experience that we go through. We have billions of uh, sensations and feelings and thoughts uh, as part of our conscious existence, and only a minute portion of that is socially leaked out and shared. So anybody, including your best friend and your most significant partner, at best has a very well-informed stereotype of you. So if my wife is giving me some feedback, and I can see that this is not something on the fly, but this is something that actually uh, you know, affects her emotional well-being, I'm going to take it with utmost seriousness. But at the same time, I'm also going to remember that I'm not what she thinks I am. And that's exactly what allows me to modify my behavior, because she's not really modifying the essential sense of me, which allows me to not have to worry about protecting it. It's invulnerable. It's beyond modification, which allows me to be more flexible and not caught up in trying to protect some kind of uh, marital persona. How did you begin, when you started out, I mean, um, well, writing this book, The Lotus Effect, I mean, what brought you to that point? Obviously, I'm assuming this is something that you practice, and how did you start, and, and what draw, drew you to uh, this, this kind of meditation? Well, uh, in, in 1963, I believe, there was a Buddhist monk, uh, Thich Quang Duc, or Thich Quang Duc, who immolated himself in Saigon. Uh, he was protesting Chinese, uh, Vietnamese prosecution of Buddhists. Uh, and what he did is that he sat down in the middle of a public square, doused himself with gasoline, and burned alive without making a peak, peep. Uh, he, he just uh, burned down like a candle, you know, the, the fat on his face coagulating off his cheekbones. You know, horrible scenario, but he didn't flail, flail arms. He didn't uh, evidence any sign of agony. When I stumbled upon this historical fact, I mean, he didn't quite walk on water, but as far as <laughs> miracles go, he pretty much set a very high bar for human species, I started wondering what the hell is going on with this guy? How could he be able, how could he disidentify from his experience so effectively that he didn't run, didn't run amok, uh, didn't seem to suffer? Uh, in fact, the picture is very easy to Google. It was on the cover of Life magazine in the 60s. Um, and basically that inspired me. I became interested in meditation uh, in mid-90s, uh, and I started practicing mindfulness, and I started applying it to personal pain management uh, uh, and things of that nature. And this is the extension of that work. It's the extension of ceaseless meditation and introspections uh, and just a particular application of it to human suffering. The idea behind this book is to help you cultivate uh, psychological resilience. Uh, this is not about physical survival. This is not a Navy SEAL survival manual, but it is a survival manual of psychological threats. As a species, we've never been safer than we are. You know, the physical threats to us in comparison to what they used to be when we lived in the jungle are minimal. Uh, most of what we suffer from is symbolic threats. This, this process is about helping you realize that you are safe. You're fundamentally safe. You can lose everything and still be psychologically safe and sound. Well, as you're describing this to me and to, the, and to my listeners, uh, I'm thinking of two friends in particular that I have now who have been diagnosed with terminal cancer and been told that they have, uh, in one case, uh, a year to live. How does that, and, and, and how would something like this, or this particular way of, of meditating or being mindful, 
uh, help that individual um, with that kind of a diagnosis, or can it? It can. Uh, I mean, not with a diagnosis, not with cancer per se, although an argument could be made about that as well, uh, but certainly with, with the experience of, of, this, uh, of this health calamity. Um, one of the mirrors that you look at uh, in, in this self-help curriculum is the mirror of the body, and what I help the reader establish is that you're not your body either. Uh, what are we? We're composite creatures. As we speak right now, our cells are dividing. We've never stopped changing. Uh, Heraclitus, you know, 2,000 years ago, Greek philosopher said, you cannot enter the same river twice. We are that river. We've never been the same, physiologically speaking. We're an ongoing, unfolding process of material exchange, metabolic exchange with reality. So when you get slammed with this kind of uh, profound terminal, hopefully not terminal, but certainly life-threatening uh, diagnosis, it's, it's the last bell, you know. This is exactly the time to begin to ponder what you are in a most profound philosophical way. And, and uh, it begins with, with a question, you know, wh what am I? Who is asking this question? Which cluster of neurons? Am I that cluster of neurons? You know, am I that serotonin dopamine handshake, uh, you know, that passes between through a synaptic gap? Uh, and this is kind of the existential payload of, of Buddhism, Buddhism and psychology. It helps us transcend uh, that fear-based self-definition and allows us to find some serenity. Well, I'm going to have to recommend your book to both of these individuals, but um, we have to say goodbye. It's been you know, great talking to you this morning and sure. provided us with a lot of of uh, information and a philosophy to think about. The title of your book, The Lotus Effect, you can buy that online, bookstores everywhere. Um, thanks so much, Dr. Dr. Pavel Samoff, for being Thank on the you. show this morning. Thank you. We're going to take a, a very short break, but when we come back, we're changing topics. Jeff Eisenberg has just written a book called The Bedbug Survival Guide. This is another problem that we have to face, a very real problem. As a matter of fact, I think we have an epidemic of bedbugs in this country, and that's something nobody wants to talk about. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Don't go away. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. Do you want to know what's really going on these days? Well, Capital Thinking takes you inside the worlds of policy, politics, law, and business. What happens in Washington, on Wall Street, and in our nation's legal system impacts your business every day. We're taking you on a behind-the-scenes tour of all of it. Each week, we bring you unfiltered conversation with a variety of influential policymakers, lawyers, and business leaders. I'm Kevin O'Neill, and I'm your host as Capital Thinking tours the halls of power. Join me for Capital Thinking on the Voice America Business Network each Thursday at noon Eastern and 9 a.m. Pacific Time. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone on voiceamericavariety.com. 
and World Talk Radio. Uh, we've had a variety of topics we've been discussing this morning, very different kinds of issues, but this is a big one, bed bugs. Bed bugs, that's something no one wants to talk about or admit they have bugs usually, are a growing epidemic. Uh, one conservative estimate puts bed bug presence up more than 70% nationwide since 2007, so I guess these things are really proliferating. Um, we have on the show expert Jeff Eisenberg. He's author of the Bed Bug Survival Guide. He's right here in New York City, New York-based company, Pestaway, and he's successfully treated more than 100,000 spaces for bed bugs over the past 15 years. Um, he's the go-to guy for businesses, celebrities, the media, and everybody's, uh, I guess, uh, taking a look at your book, and you've got the best strategies and advice and tips for treating and preventing bed bug infestation. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Nice to have you on this morning. Hi, Catherine. How are you today? I'm fine. Actually, I have to tell you, Jeff, yesterday I was talking on the phone, and I had a sweatshirt on, and there was this little tiny bug crawling up my sweatshirt, and I thought, and I had been, I travel a lot, and I thought, do I have a, is that a bed bug? Um, and I don't really know what they look like, but I think it was too big to be a bed bug. But So I thought, I mean, you're the perfect person to ask. Um, we've got a big problem here. Why traveling, airplanes, what do we do? How do we prevent it? Uh, what are the mistakes we're making? Why can't we get rid of these things? Well, basically, the first thing, first thing everyone needs to do is to keep, become educated about bed bugs. There's no silver bullet. There's no DDT. There's nothing that's going to solve this problem. More people educate themselves about bed bugs, what to look for, what to do, what not to do. The best way to prevent bed bugs when you travel, your kids in school, your office, your workplace. I mean, any place that people go, they are susceptible to getting bed bugs. And you have to first debunk a lot of the myths that are associated with bed bugs. First are the bed bugs only live in the cities. This is not true. They're everywhere. They're in the suburbs, they're in rural communities. They're on planes, trains, automobiles, doctor's offices. So don't think it's about, about being in the city. Second thing is not, bed bugs are not just about beds. That's just typically where they feed on you. But they're in offices all the time. So it's not about throwing at your mattress and solving the problem. You also don't want to think that you could run away from the problem by moving to another room or, or, or moving out of your house. You can't run away from bed bugs. Um, and people just tend to do a lot of common sense things which in life, common sense is a very good thing to do in general, but you, with bed bugs, it actually makes it worse. People often go to the hardware stores and they buy some sprays that say bed bugs all over it or set up bombs. This, these, these chemicals usually have something called pyrethrum inside. It's tear gas. And what you do is this tear gas sends bed bugs in 50 different directions when you set it off, making a problem that may have only been in one room and now it's all over your house, apartment, and your neighbors, and, and everywhere else you can think of. So, so Jeff, just what you're more saying, things you have to understand our, what not to do than what to do. So we should, like, let's say you think you have bed bugs. Well, there's two. I have so many questions. But if you think you have bed bugs, call, call like, somebody like you. Your company, I mean, is that what you need to do, not handle it yourself and go out and buy yeah, it? You don't want to handle it yourself. The first step, if, if you think you have them, you want to call a special independent canine company not an extermination company that has a canine, because there's a conflict of interest there. So these are, these are specially trained dogs that can detect the scent of bed bugs. 
Um, the whole purpose of, of writing the book was a, was a public awareness. We, all, the, all the proceeds and advances we got are being donated to children's charities, kids with cancer, because we really were just trying to help the public. And by reading this, you're going to just arm yourself with tremendous knowledge, and it's going to save you thousands of dollars down the road if, you, if and when you get bed bugs. And more importantly, these, these techniques will help you prevent getting bed bugs by 75%. These are proven techniques from people, thousands of people who have employed them and have never gotten them. And Why do we have more bed bugs, or do we have more bed bugs now than we ever did? What's the reason for that? Is it because people, the world is so interconnected, and we we pass them, you know, when we travel, and we, we yes, yeah, we, we 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 basically we reintroduce them into this country after a forty or fifty year hiatus, and now that they're here. But the biggest problem why they're spreading like wildfire is because most people don't think of themselves as someone who's a candidate for bed bugs. People think, well, I shower every day. My house is very clean. I have a maid. I went to Harvard. These things are just not relevant to bed bugs. Bed bugs don't care anything about how clean you are. They only feed on, on blood. So you can't, the people go into what I call the bed bug denial stage thinking that they're not capable of getting them. But in reality, they do. They love five-star hotels. They love big houses. They love as many things as, as people think that uh, they can never get them. It's very important to understand that. So by, by educating yourself about what to do and what not to do, it, it will help you prevent them. I mean, I have more exposure to bed bugs than anybody. I've never brought them into my house because I employ all these little you know, tips and measures into preventing them and from getting into my front door. Well, we have just a few seconds left, so I guess our, my listeners are going to have to go out and buy your book uh, to find out specifically what they can do to prevent them, and if, unfortunately, you do get them, how to handle it and how to get rid of them. Um, so it's the Bed Bug Survival Guide. Do we have a website, Jeff, that we can go to? Yes, yes uh, the bedbugsurvivalguide.com, and it will give you lots of tips and tricks and and blogs, and uh, but buying the book is going to help yourself and help your family from ever getting this problem, which I highly suggest. And I'm going to reiterate one more time: bed bugs do not discriminate. They, as you said, they like five-star hotels. They probably like first-class cabins on an airplane. Uh, mm-hmm. They like people with PhDs. They like everybody. So um, we have to really cut through the denial because most people do think, "I'm well, I wouldn't get bugs." First of all, uh, but you. How, I have, but before we say goodbye, how big are bed bugs? Well, they go from as small as one millimeter, which is about the size of a piece of dandruff, uh-huh. to up to about uh, five millimeters, six millimeters. But it's very difficult to see them with the naked eye. They only come out three to five minutes every seven to 14 days. So the likelihood of seeing them is not very great. And if you do see them, you've got a major problem. Okay. Thanks so much for being on the show this Thanks morning. Thanks very much. Hope you had a great morning. I did. Have a good week. And uh, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. We'll see you next week. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. 
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com.